Thank you for watching this message from the Bridge Church. Our mission here is to be a church for Christ, for community, and for the city. You're watching a message from our series called Messy Church. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know by emailing us at storiesatthebridgeilm.com. Thank you for watching, and God bless you. All right. Um, well, I'm surprised that uh, most of you are still here after hearing that uh, passage. Um, just now, maybe, uh, maybe you just wanted to stay to see the fireworks or something. Um, well, hey, good morning and welcome to The Bridge. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Just thank you so much for, for being here. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and grab it. Uh, grab your Bible, open it, or turn it on to uh, 1 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. It's about the middle of the New Testament. It's a letter written by uh, the Apostle Paul. And so I want you to go ahead and, and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, we'll put the verses on the screen for you, and then we'll even give you a Bible today if you don't own one. We'd love to be able to give you a Bible completely for free if, if you don't have one. Uh, would be would be our delight. So before before we jump into the good stuff, um, let me uh, let me just mention something real quick today. Um, uh, we're, we're giving you, on, on your way out today, we're giving you our annual report as, as a church. And so our fiscal year runs from July to June, and we just are here at the, at the end of our, our previous fiscal year. Um, this past Tuesday was a night where our covenant membership uh, came together for our annual covenant member night. and was a great uh, evening of just celebration, shared a meal together, and uh, was just a, a fantastic uh, time. And so um, in here highlights a lot of things about what God has done over the past a year, uh, just some amazing things like 47 baptisms in the last fiscal year, which is just nuts. Um, people in community groups, um, just all sorts of different kinds of things that God has been doing. So I want you to be able to see that on your way out. And then as well, um, we had a couple um, uh, matters that we uh, uh, voted on together as, as a body on Tuesday night and just wanted to give you an update on those. We uh, updated our bylaws. Uh, we had a, some amendments to our bylaws, which we do on a regular basis just to make sure they reflect the way that we operate as a um, as a church, and then we so we voted on that, and then we also voted on two uh, elder candidates to be, potentially become uh, new new elders at the bridge. And so I wanted you to know that both of those passed, and so now we have new uh, some new bylaws and some new el elders, which is fantastic. Um, if you're not aware, as a church, we, uh, we try to operate with a plurality of elders or pastors. We use those terms synonymously. And so now we have five uh, elders who, who govern and, and lead and direct and shepherd and protect and just really uh, guard, guard the flock. And so I'm just really, really encouraged by uh, our, new two, our two new elders, Chris Covington and Tim Banta, and uh, just really, really blessed to be able to have just some wonderful leadership here uh, at our church. And so just praise God uh, uh, for that and just wanted to celebrate that. Uh, with you. Well, um, today um, I get the wonderful privilege of addressing gender in the church. <laughs> uh, does anyone want my job? You know, I will gladly give it up uh, to you. Um, it's going to be definitely an interesting, an interesting topic, an interesting passage. And so, before I jump into the text, I do want to mention a few preliminary points that I think will hopefully lay some of the foundation for where we're going. So before you get your tomatoes out and start throwing them at me, um, I want to lay some of the foundation work for um, how we address this and the way that we think about approaching a, a subject like this, okay? So here, here's the first thing. First of all, our rule of thumb here at the bridge is that we love the Bible, uh, we love the Bible. We think the Bible is one of the most, the most helpful, practical, insightful, and revolutionary books that's ever been written. And we also believe that the reason that it's the case is because it is a divine book. 
And we believe that there just isn't anything normal about the Bible, but there's something actually very uh, supernatural about the Bible. And so, therefore, we try to, as a church, designate the bulk of our teaching throughout the year to teach through individual books of the Bible. So that means the Bible is 66. It's a collection of 66 books um, in, in two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. And we choose as a regular habit as a church to take one of those books and to start at the beginning and, and go to the end. And what that does is it, um, it allows us to be able to cover things and to teach things um, that God has written to us. And so rather than me each week coming up with a new idea, a new concept that I think you need to hear, um, rather, and some churches do that and it's fine, uh, we like to take a book of the Bible and just start at the beginning and, and go to the end. And really just let uh, God say what he wants to say rather than me saying what I want to say. Because if it was my choice, I would not pick this. <laughs> so we believe the Bible. We love the Bible. And we just think it's uh, absolutely critical for, for us. And so, so, so we, teach through, um, we, we teach through books of the Bible. Now, the next thing that um, I will say is that this is one, this text today, this is one of the most complex, uh, difficult, slippery text in the entire letter of 1 Corinthians which is in our series, Messy Church, Walking Through 1 Corinthians. And not only is it one of the most complex passages in 1 Corinthians, it's one of the most complex passages in the entire New Testament. So with that being said, it's almost impossible to get this 100% right because there's just so much about the original language and the original context that make it hard for us to decipher everything that Paul says. And so this week, I've literally spent about triple the amount of time doing study, research, conversations with people in order to try to understand what he is trying to say and what he has uh, for us. And so additionally, I need, um, I need to let you or, or help us acknowledge that all of us, when we come to the text, have our own bias and have our own baggage when we come to the text, when we come to Scripture, when we come to the Word. What, what that means is that all of us, all of us come to the text with like a certain background, certain perspective, certain experiences that influence the way that we read the Bible. And the goal for us and the goal for me, which I've been trying to do all week long, is to remove myself, my own bias, and my own baggage when it comes to uh, the text and hopefully see uh, what it says and let it stand on its own two legs and not to try to manufacture it or fabricate it into something that I want to say. So what that means is that when you read today and when you look at the Bible, the goal um, is not to try to circumvent it or try to figure out a way that it can promote your own agenda. What we need to do is let the Bible stand on its own for its own agenda and what it has. And the reason why we want to do that is because when our lives are most aligned with God's design for us is when we flourish the most. When we start to bring in our own agenda and try to fabricate scripture and try to make it say what we want it to say, we are deviating from what God's intentions would be for our lives and therefore bypassing the beauty and the flourishing that he would want us to experience as a result of, of the word. You with me? You, you know what I mean by that? And, and so we want to as best we can, and it's extremely hard, but to try to remove our bias and the baggage that we have when it comes uh, to the text. And then I also want to say this. Um, I also want to say that uh, and acknowledge that I know that some of you have suffered significantly because of inappropriate abuses of the Bible and other religious teachings that are associated with gender. And for all the women in the room, I want to just acknowledge that for many of you, you have been discriminated against and treated differently on the basis of your gender, and perhaps on a regular basis, perhaps on a daily basis. 
And I recognize that there are Christians, there are churches, there are denominations that have marginalized women and their God-given gifts and made them into second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, and that is completely unacceptable. That is not okay with me. It is not okay with God's word. It is not okay in the kingdom of God and the way that he operates for us to do that. And so I just want to say that there have been some unbelievably deplorable things that people have done towards women and I apologize for that. You know, I apologize for people that use the Bible, for people that use their own bigotry in order to discriminate against you. And I just want to say that that is not the goal or the agenda for uh, today. And that is not God's design for, for us. And I'll also say this, that there are, uh, surprisingly, shockingly, a lot of debate and a lot of differences of opinion within Christianity when it comes to this issue. What that means is that I have a lot of good friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Christian uh, brothers and pastors even, who, who just disagree with one another on issues like this. And I just want to say that that's okay. N not, of us, not all of us are going to have this completely uh, correct. Not all of us are 100% accurate in our interpretation of Scripture and our understanding of theology. And so I just want to say it's okay that there are some differences of opinion and we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ and love one another even in our, in our differences. And this issue that we're going to be talking about today is, is not a primary issue, it is a secondary issue. What we mean by that is that uh, primary issues are those that are related to the gospel, that are related to who God is and what he has done, theological things about his essence and his work and his, his will. And this is, though it is an important issue, it is not a primary issue, okay? And so you may have a disagreement with me, you may know someone, you may have close friends that have disagreements with you or with me, and, and that is okay. And then here's... Here's the last thing that I'll say, that if this is your first time um, at the bridge, um, I hope you enjoy your one visit to <laughs> the bridge. Because, uh, seriously, I, I know that many, many of you aren't even Christians, and maybe you've been getting an invite from a coworker or a friend or a family member that's been pestering you to come to the bridge, and you finally was, you know, wanted to shut him up, and so you decided to come, and you're here, and we're talking about gender, you know? So just wanted you to know, uh, we don't talk about gender and money every single week, okay? So please, please come back, and uh, please come back, and hopefully you will experience um, all of what, what we do, not just, not just this, so, okay? So hopefully that's a little bit of a foundation, and then let's go ahead and jump in. Um, I'm going to jump in, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and this is uh, how we'll begin. He says this. This is Paul. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul commends them, which is really an abrupt change from his language and his posture of what he's been doing uh, for the last few chapters. The last few chapters, chapters, he's been taking a whacking stick to the Corinthians because they are just so uh, disjointed and uh, the way that they are operating within the church is just so fractured and, and, and broken. He's been trying to reorient them to the way that they should live. And now here we have a little bit of a commendation because they are remembering him and maintaining some of the traditions. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that means some of the traditions as it relates to uh, the corporate worship and the practices that he instructed them uh, to do, okay? So now verse 3, he goes and he says this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So this is, this is heavy. Paul starts his instructions to them on gender with a metaphor of headship. And what he does is he gives us a three images of headship, 
Christ is the head of a man, a husband is the head of his wife, and God is God the Father is uh, the head of Christ, God the Son. Now, what in the world is he, he trying to mean by this? Uh, Paul uses some similar language to this in other places in the New Testament, and so I thought it would be helpful for you to see some of these other places. So I'll mention a few of them to you. Ephesians 1.22, he says this, And he put all things under his feet, this is Jesus, and gave him uh, as head over all things to the church which means that Jesus is the head of, of the church. Ethan is not head of the church. There isn't another pastor that's head of the church. Jesus, he, he's, he is the head of the church. Ephesians 4.15 says this, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head into Christ. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior which means that the marriage relationship is supposed to be a mirror. It's supposed to be a picture of what Jesus' relationship with his church is. Jesus is the metaphorical uh, groom, and we are his, his bride. And marriage is supposed to be a picture, a mirror, of what it's like to have a relationship with, with, with Jesus. In Colossians 1.18, I'll mention a couple more. And he, this is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In Colossians 2.10, one more. And you have been filled in him, which is Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, in each of these passages, the Greek word here that we have for head is the Greek word um, kephale. Um, it's the actual, the same word that is used in our passage in 1 Corinthians 11. And the most common uh, use of the word for head uh, is with reference to someone or something that has a leadership role or has some kind of authority in a situation. So the most traditional interpretation of kephale in our passage is that uh, the head is a position of leadership. So Christ is the head, the leader of man. A husband is the head, the leader of his wife. And God is the head, the leader of, of Christ. Now, there are some differences of interpretation when it comes to this word. That's why I'm spending some time on it. Some different interpretations that lead to some different outcomes in this. And I recognize that some of, some of those are, are very um, uh, valid and theological uh, theologically worthy to be, be considered, but at the end of the day, when I think Paul uses this word head, I think that what he's trying to do is outline for us uh, roles uh, that we should uh, consider when it relates to God and when it relates to, to us. Now, what I think will give you some encouragement for us to understand this concept of headship is that Paul, he refers to a God as the head of Christ, that God is the head of Christ. So, what should strike you more odd than man as the head of his wife is that God is the head of Christ. I mean, that should like, if you're a Christian, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with the concept of the Trinity, that should be like extremely interesting to you. That should be a little bit, little bit odd. Now, here's, here's why. It's clear from the scriptures that God is one being in three persons. So God, and you're not going to be able to completely wrap your mind around it, but the way that the scriptures tell us about who God is and what he's like, he's one being, but he is three distinct uh, persons. This is what we call the Trinity. And the three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And additionally, scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal. They're all equal. So it's not like the Father is varsity, and Jesus is kind of junior varsity, and the Holy Spirit, you know, he's kind of, you know, he's the water boy. Um, that's not at all the way that the Bible talks about God. The way that the Bible talks about God and the distinct persons within God is that they're, they're all equal. There's no, like, level of superiority. You know, it's not like the Father is more important than the Son. No, they're, they're all equal. They all are the essence of who God is. 
They, they all reflect God because their personhood and who they are in God. So if that is the case, then how could Paul refer to God the Father as the head of God the Son, Christ? Well, the way that he can do that is because um, within the three persons of the Trinity, though they are equal in their identity as God, they are different in their function. They're different in their function, and theologians refer to this as functional subordination. So we see this uh, throughout the Gospels. Jesus, if you think about it, Jesus, he repeatedly and he continually, he says, I have come to do the will of who? The Father. I have come to do the will of the Father. It says that Jesus, his mission, his agenda, his goal on the earth isn't to do his own thing and to call his own shots, but he wants to do whatever is the will of the Father, which means he submits to the Father functionally in in their relationship in the way that he operates in in the world. So what this means, and this is huge, if, if you get this, it gives you the ability to understand what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that within the Trinity, there is equality in essence, but distinction in function. Equality in in essence, but distinction in in function. Just different functions and different roles that they operate in. So the same is true of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Now, men are not superior to women or more worthy than women or more valuable than women. Men and women are both created in the image of God with equality, which is what the Bible teaches. And just for the record, the Bible was unbelievably revolutionary in its day. Much of the cultures in which the Bible was written into were extremely misogynistic cultures, where where women were extremely devalued and were not seen as, as on the same playing field as women. And then you read the Bible, and the Bible talks about men and women both created equally in God's image. It was, it was just shocking. It would have been shocking to the readers that are, that are looking at this and saying, you mean to tell me that men and women are on the same playing field, that they are the exact same essence in their equality? And that's what the Bible teaches. And then not only that, if you look through the, the New Testament, women are uh, essential to the mission of God. So Jesus, he regularly, regularly is surrounded by women who are joining him in his mission and aiding him in what he is, is doing. I mean, if you just look at the different passages, he's always mentioning women who are around him, who are helping, who are serving, who are leading, doing all sorts of different things in the ministry that, that he is doing. And so it's true of Jesus. It's also true of the Apostle Paul in the early church. Paul repeatedly, he quotes women's names who are uh, serving and, and doing, fulfilling roles and different things within the church and just serving in their God-given gifts and their abilities and their passions and their skills. And Paul is mentioning their names. This would have just been revolutionary for him to mention a female's name in the letter that he is writing to this, this, this culture, but he does it all over the place. And the reason that they do that is because they see men and women as equally valuable in the kingdom of God. Men are not more equally uh, valid in the kingdom of God. Men and women are both equal in their essence in what God has called us to do. So for just clarification purposes, the Bible esteems and exalts women as equally valuable as men. And the difference is not in their equality, but in their function. And what that means is that when it comes to a marriage, God expects husbands and wives to have different functions, to have different roles. And I'll say this as well, there is also equality in function. Both roles are equally valid. It's not like one is more important than the other. So it's not like it's not like God, you know, when the wife isn't looking, you know, he kind of reaches over to the, the, the man and gives him a high five and he says, way to go, man. Your job is way more important than hers. He, d- he doesn't do that. 
There, there's nothing in the, the Bible like that. It's not like, it's not like uh, man's role, woman's role. It's not like uh, here's a man up here, here's a woman down here. No, it's like they are both complementary, have equally valid roles in what they bring to the table in a marriage relationship. There isn't one over the other. Men aren't superior to women when it, when it comes to marriage in, in the Bible. So God, the way that he articulates a husband's role is he says that a husband is the, the head. This is also a similar language to what we find in a covenant. So in a covenant, there is a head of a covenant who is responsible for safeguarding the covenant and protecting it. And that's the role of a husband. He's supposed to be the defender, the protector, the head of a marriage relationship. So some men, unfortunately, think, I'm the head of this marriage. I get to do whatever I want to do. That's completely wrong. That's completely wrong. The head of a covenant sacrifices his life for the sake of the relationship for the covenant, which means if you are the head, it means you intentionally defer your rights, conveniences, comforts for the sake of the relationship. It means you don't get to do what you want to do. That's the way that the scripture talks about it, that men are supposed to exist and live and sacrifice for their wives in such a way that the relationship flourishes. Not that the man is some bigoted, superior, hierarchical, authoritarian over his wife, commanding and telling his wife everything that she should do. No, it's a complementary relationship in which both functions are equally valid when you come to the table. They're both equally valid in, in, God's, in God's eyes. And the way that God articulates a wife's role is that she is the helper. So husband is the head, the woman, the wife is the helper. You're like, that doesn't sound very fun. Um, we see this first in the creation account in the beginning of Genesis when God creates um, Eve to be a helper fit for Adam. So I, I, like the way that, um, I like the way that God does this. So God creates Adam first. He creates man, um, and he is responsible for uh, taking care of creation. He's responsible for naming the animals. He's responsible for doing the things that God has told him to do to carry on the mission of God and Adam. Um, he starts to look at all the animals, and he sees, you know, a couple elephants, and, like, they're a pair together. They have some male and female, and then he looks at the giraffes, and it's like, it's a male-female relationship there, and then he's a little slow, but he, he's picking up on it, and he looks at his own life, and he says, how come I don't have a companion? And that's the only thing that God says about creation that isn't good, that man should be alone. And so God creates woman so that Adam could see his need and the necessary, what he needs for a relationship, companionship, partnership with someone else, a woman that complements him in the things that he needs for his life. And, uh, and then we, we see that when, um, when God does that, he calls Eve Adam's helper. Now, some of you think that that means, you know, she helps around the house. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. It means that her role in the family and in the relationship is to come alongside the God-given mission that he has given them and to help and to be a partner and to be a companion for what God has called them both to do. And then you look at the Psalms. Uh, maybe this will be uh, encouraging. You look at the Psalms and repeatedly over and over and over, God, he actually refers to himself as our helper. He's our helper, which means... For a wife, your role is a God-given role. It is something that reflects who God is. It is uh, demonstrating the essence of God as a helper, as a companion, as a partner for the mission that God has called you uh, to do. So I'm not going to go down that road any further because Paul doesn't, but I think it's important to understand like, how he could refer to uh, headship here, here in the passage, okay? 
Now look at me in verse 4. We'll go on. He says this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So Paul, he goes on and begins to speak generally about how a man should conduct himself in corporate worship, um, which is what he's referring to when Paul says praying and prophesying. Prophesying is a spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit in which God gives you a spontaneous word of exhortation for a particular situation. We're not going to go down that road uh, long because here in a couple chapters we're going to be talking extensively about prophecy and what that, that looks like. And so God, um, or Paul here, he says rather, in, when you pray and when you prophesy, he's, he's using language here that is corporate worship, the corporate worship, the gathering of, of the church. And he says that when a, a man worships with his head covered, then it dishonors his head. Now, we don't exactly know what Paul is talking about here. Um, it's a, not completely clear uh, whether it is like a literal head covering, like a garment of a toga that he would use to cover his head, or if this means like the covering of his hair of, of some sort. And culturally, some say that uh, pagan priests and, and other men uh, tried to be effeminate in the way that they dressed and their coverings, and so Paul was trying to make a correlation that not to... We don't know exactly what he is talking about when he says a covering here, but we do know that Paul is saying that men shouldn't cover their physical heads in worship because in their culture that would have been dishonoring to their figurative head, Jesus. So in their cultural culture, if, if a man in society were to cover his head in some kind of worship environment, then that would be dishonoring um, in his masculinity. Now, we don't have an exact correlation to uh, what that would be like in our culture, but he's saying that if you act in such a way that would be disjointed from the way that God has created you as a man, when you act contrary to the way that God has made you in your gender, then you are dishonoring to Christ, who is the head of your relationship. Now he goes on in verse 5. He addresses the wife. But every wife who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So Paul switches to, uh, from the men and addresses uh, the women, the wives of the church. And the first thing that I want to point out here in the passage is that Paul assumes that women should be praying and prophesying in church, which is just a good thing, which means when we show up together as a body, uh, women have just as much to contribute as men do. And Paul assumes that when you come here, you are praying, you are engaged with God, and you are listening to God. You have an ear to God, asking God to speak and to direct. And that means that God, whether you are a man or a woman, may speak to you and lead you whenever we gather together as, as his body. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that God does that with both of us, regardless of, of, of what our, our gender is. And he says that if a wife in corporate worship uncovers her head, then she dishonors her head, her figurative head, which is her husband. Now, we aren't completely sure what Paul means by head covering here for the woman is either. Um, perhaps he means some kind of physical garment to cover her head. Uh, maybe he means her hair. Um, but he could even be referring to the way that her style or her hair was, was styled. We, we aren't exactly sure. But here, here's the big idea. Apparently, uh, some of the women in the church in Corinth were entering corporate worship and were acting in a way that would have been contrary to their God-given gender. And we don't know exactly what they were doing, but obviously it was dishonoring. It was dishonoring to their head, to their husband. So N.T. Wright, he's a theologian who, who comments on this. N.T. Wright, he addresses the issue and he suggests that another dimension to the problem could have been that in their culture, the only women who appeared in public without some kind of head covering were prostitutes. 
And Paul doesn't say this explicitly, but perhaps it was something that he was thinking about that was happening in their culture. Others have suggested that uh, something similar, that in the the city of Corinth, women who prayed and prophesied with their head uncovered uh, could have meant that they removed their their veil, which would have been dishonoring to their husband or to their their father, or they could have been letting their hair down in such a way that would have been similar to to a prostitute. And both of these acts, we're not exactly sure what it is, but both of these acts were dishonoring to their, their husband. Now, there's a good chance that the reason why some of these women are acting this way is because of the freedom that they have now found in Christ, the liberation that they have experienced in Christ. And so when they become a Christian, they experience that Jesus accepts them, not because of some kind of social status, but Jesus accepts them just because of, of who they are regardless if they are male, female, black, white, rich, poor, that God accepts you not because of what you bring to the table, but because of who you are. And they experience this new freedom in Christ. It liberates them. And what potentially is happening here is that they enter corporate worship and they have so much freedom and liberation that they go across the line and start to act like their gender isn't even important anymore. And Paul, he's kind of bringing in the reins. He's trying to bring in the reins and saying that, hey, your your gender in which God has given you is a wonderful, beautiful thing that you don't need to disregard when you come into corporate worship, but you need to embrace and acknowledge the way that God has uh, uh, gifted you, the way that God has has made you. Now, um, perhaps what's, what's happening is that there is just an inordinate level of freedom that some of these women are experiencing. And so Paul is saying that your gender is important. So it, maybe it would kind of be like, maybe it would kind of be like you, you experience freedom in Christ, you're, you're liberated, you're a Christian, and so you, you come into corporate worship and you want to remove yourselves of any kind of human things that would drag you down or any kind of symbols that, that would uh, take away from what Christ has done in you. So you, you take off your wedding band. <laughs> leave, it, leave it at the door before you, you come in. And kind of what Paul's saying is like, no, you, you need to em- embrace who you are and what God ha- has given you. You don't need to disregard some of those things. Some of those things are very important for who you are because it is the way that God ha- has, has made you. So I, I want to say, say this as well. Is we, li- we live in a culture that is fragmented, that is, I think, confused, a, a culture that is struggling on a number of different issues, and I think specifically the, the issue of, of gender. And so if you are here today, and hopefully we, you are, and you're a person that um, maybe has issues with gender, maybe you personally struggle with your own gender and your identity and, and who you are, I just want to address you particularly and say that we love you. We, we love you regardless of, of how, who you are, what your struggle is, how you come in this room. Every single person that walks through that door struggles with something, has some baggage, has some things in their life that's broken and messy. And you aren't any different than anybody else. And so you come in here, and you're welcome to be here. And we love you, and we absolutely love that you are here. And I want to say, too, that, that you, you aren't weird. You're not some kind of wacko because you struggle with that, because that's how, how you feel. I, I recognize that there are some significant things, uh, p- perhaps biologically, some things that maybe have happened in your past that would make you uh, feel that way and lead you down, that perhaps abuses and all sorts of different things. And I just want to say that you aren't weird, that you are made in God's image, that you have dignity and, and value, and I want to say that God has a design and a plan for your life, that you are not a mistake. God didn't mess up when he made you. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got a design. He's got a role for you, and, and Paul here, he, 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 wants, 
his readers to understand, hey, embrace that. Own that how God is, has made. If God has made you as, as a man, own that and demonstrate the, the character of God and the image of God and the way that he has made you. And if you, you are a woman, embrace that and own that in the beauty in that and the way that it reflects who God is and what, what God has done. Embrace that. Don't try to disregard that. And then Paul, he goes on in verse 6 and he says this. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. He's using a little bit of hyperbole here. Paul is essentially saying that in his culture, for a woman not to cover her head was the same as cutting her hair short. The, the idea here is that uh, a woman uncovering her head is the same as shaving her head. And Paul says, let a wife cover her head. Now, one writer that I read um, about uh, this in the culture uh, made, made the argument that said sometimes um, in cultures, women who had their shaves, their, their head shaven rather, the only women that would have had that happen to them were those who committed adultery. And if you committed adultery, you were brought into the town square and your hair was shaved off. And maybe this, this is the case. We're not completely sure. But Paul says, for whatever reason, in their culture, for a wife to uncover her head would have been dishonoring to her husband. It would have been trying to remove a God-given thing about her, and she shouldn't do that. Then verse 7, he goes on, he says this. For a man, not ought, to, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Okay. What in the world does he mean by that? What Paul is not doing, I don't think what Paul is doing is trying to say that men are more glorifying to God than women. Like men bring more glory to God than, than women or that men are more important or valuable to God. I think what Paul is doing here is he's referring back to the Genesis account when God created the man first and then the woman second. So if you're not familiar with the Genesis account when God created man and woman, God created Adam before he created Eve and so, before Eve ever came onto the scene, God created Adam, and Adam was the glory of God. He was the splendor of God. He brought honor to God. He brought beauty to God. He was his creation. He, was, he, he brought something. He brought glory and splendor and honor that wasn't there previously. And so, uh, Paul is referencing back to Genesis, and he's saying that, that man, when, when God made Adam, he was, he was the glory of God. He was, he was the splendor of God. He was the beauty of, of God. And then, he goes on, and he says that um, a woman... Uh, let's see, where am I at? God created Adam apart from a woman um, because he wanted Adam to see that he needed companionship and partnership in, in the relationship and that there was something that was incomplete about him uh, until he had her. And then we see that um, God creates Eve, get this, out of the side of, of Adam. So if you look back at Genesis at the beginning, it says that God made Eve out of the side of man. Now, why would he pick the side? <laughs> he could have picked anywhere that he wanted. He could have picked, you know, something, uh, arm, leg, head, any, anything. But God chose to create Eve out of the side of, of Adam. Why, why did he do that? Because he wanted Eve to be Adam's equal, his, his partner, his mate, his companionship, that they are side by side in the mission that God has for them that they were equally beneficial and valuable in the role that God has called them to do. And so when God made Eve, she was now Adam's glory. She was the beauty of Adam. God made her out of the side of Adam, and now she is the beauty, the glory, the splendor, just the, the honor of, of Adam. And we see that God wakes Adam back up, and he presents Eve to Adam, and Adam is blown away. 
He's a, he looks at Eve and he says, he's, whoa, man. That's why he called her woman. He's just like, whoa, like, holy cow, look at this. And then it says, it says in the passage that, that Adam, he, he, he starts a song. He, he writes a poem, a song. Like, he's so moved. He sees Eve and he's just completely blown away by her. And he just can't help but like, write a song about it because she is so amazing. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that, that, that Eve, she's the, she's the glory of man. It just means that she's, she's the splendor. She's the splendor in the way that she was created from man. And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says this. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I have no clue what that means. I'm just, <laughs> I could try to play like a pastor card here and, you know, like, fake it till I make it, you know, and try to say, I, I just really have no clue uh, what that means. And I've spent hours trying to figure out what that means. There are a lot of different ideas and thoughts and theories, but we just don't exactly know what, what that means. And so I'm just not even going to try to act like I know what that means, okay? So fire me, it's okay. Verse, verse 11. <laughs> verse 11, he goes on, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so now, so man is now born of woman. Take that, man. And all things are from God. So this is where the women stand up and clap their hands and I join you. In ancient culture, women were just viewed as a means to an end. Women were just responsible for making children and staying around the house and maintaining the house. They were just viewed as subhuman, as secondary citizens. And then Paul here is essentially saying that this, uh, that this discussion that he's having with them should not lead to a sense of hi hierarchical relationship between a husband and a woman where a man now feels like he is independent of his, of his wife. That's just completely impossible, Paul says in, in his mind. Neither party should act as if they are independent of their spouse. Rather, a husband and a wife should have a relationship that is mutually interdependent. A relationship that is interdependent, dependent on one another, which means they are both equally necessary for the health of their relationship. And I think Paul, he probably noticed that there was a chance that some of the men might get a little prideful on this passage after the comments about how a woman was made from the man. And so Paul takes it to the next level. He says, yes, a woman was made from man, but now every man is born of woman. <laughs> Meaning, uh, how did you get here, fellas? Not on your own. The way that you got here was from a woman. So don't be getting all high and mighty uh, on, on yourself. If it wasn't for the women, none of us would be here. So women, we are very, very grateful for you. He says, so don't start to act. Like, you're now independent of your spouse. Like, you now have, have some kind of headship, authority, you know, hierarchical view. No, no, no. There is an interdependent need that you have with your own, own, own spouse. And so I think application of this, I think we live in a culture that is extremely independent when it comes to, to individuals, when it comes to our lives. We have a culture that screams at us that you need to be your own person, that you need to do your own thing, that you need to conquer your own dreams, your own goals. You need to be your own person. And Paul says that isn't the case. You don't live separate lives. You don't have separate theologies. He figures out what he believes and she figures out what she believes. No, you, you have the same. You don't have separate interests. Well, this is the dream for my life, and then he has his own dream for his life. You don't have separate goals. You don't have separate bank accounts. Because if you do, it will eventually lead to separate affairs and separate divorce attorneys. And Paul is saying that there is an interdependence, which means you are on the same page. You are equally necessary to each other and that the health of your relationship happens when you are both coming to the table, equally benefiting one another. I look at my, I look at my own life. So I've been married coming up on seven years. Um, 
I know I'm a rookie. Um, seven years coming up this summer. And um, I look back to, at my life before I met my wife, Ashley. And I was just an idiot. <laughs> just, I was just a disaster, all right? A single guy, bachelor in, in his 20s. I was just a disaster. So if you're a single guy here in your 20s, you're a bachelor, your life is probably a disaster. You know, I'm just going to... I'm just gonna, just gonna say that. When, when I met Ashley, like there was just something amazing that she brought to my life that just didn't exist before our, our relationship. And I, I look at her and the way that she um, benefits me, the way that I benefit her, the way that she brings so many things to my life that weren't, weren't there. I mean, the reason that I'm wearing a vest this morning is because of her, you know, I, I, I promise you. I mean, there's like, um, like, I have a wardrobe now, you know? I mean, there's, like, things in my... She just brings so much to the table. And Paul's trying to say that there's, there's an interdependence. Don't even just think for a minute that you are now on your own, living your own life. You have your own role, and you can do your own. No, you are unbelievably in, uh, interdependent upon one another. And then he says this, verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What Paul does uh, here is he makes one last point as it relates to women covering their heads. He actually appeals to nature, the created order, and acknowledges that there's something natural about a woman uh, having a covering differentiated from a, a man. And he argues primarily on the basis uh, that creation itself tends to give men shorter hair and women longer hair. He's not at all trying to go down the road of like women have to have a certain length of hair, men have to have a certain length. He's just trying to say that there is even something natural in the created order of the way that God has made men and women that is distinctive of their, their, their gender, that there are clear distinctions. And then verse 16, he, he ends with this. This is our last verse. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious. Now, why in the world would anyone want to be contentious about an issue like this? <laughs> We're just all on the same page. We all agree. It's easy. We don't even have questions about this. We don't even need to have discussions about interpretation because it's just so easy when it comes to gender. We all agree on the same thing. Well, even in Paul's today, this was an issue that was extremely controversial for the church and for their culture. And he says, what he's saying is that some of us will feel the desire to be contentious as it relates to this. The idea here, the meaning for contentious, it's argumentative. It's being quarrelsome. It's being wanting to fight in response to what he has said. And Paul says there is no place for that in the church. There's just absolutely no place for being contentious, causing a fight, being argumentative when it comes to uh, matters like this. It doesn't mean that we can't have conversations. It doesn't mean that we can talk, we can grow, we can learn, we can help each other, we can try to figure out exactly what we should be doing. But he says there is just no place for, being, for fighting and having contention when it comes to, to this issue. So what he expects within the church is that there to be some differences of opinion on certain things, differences of perspective, but he says that we shouldn't fight about it. Now, how, does he, how can he say something like that? How can he say that you come in here, the church, from, if you've been here very long, we believe the church is supposed to be multicultural. You come in here with your own culture, with your own history, with your own uh, life, with your own experiences. You come into the church, you bring that culture in here, lots of different cultures, cultures present. How can you get along and not fight about the differences of your culture? The only way that you could do that is if you had something that was greater than the differences that you share with the people that are in here. And what that is, is the gospel. 
It's, it's the gospel. I, I say this all the time. The way that we can have a diverse church, the way that we can have a multicultural church with different colors of skins, different classes, different cultures, whatever it is, the way that we can do that is because of the gospel. And that means that we come into the church the, the same. We come centered on the gospel, what Christ has done. The gospel is that Jesus loved you not because of your skin color. Jesus loved you not because of how much money you have, not because of how moral you are. Jesus loved you regardless of any of those things, and you come to the table just like anybody else does. And you accept him, you receive him, you become his son, you become his daughter, you, be, you enter the family of God, not because of any of those uh, differences, but because of what you share in, in Christ and what he has done for you. And when we center ourselves on, on that, on what is, what is central it allows us to even have some disagreements and discussions on things that are differences of opinion. I think Ethan is a little off on this or a little off on this or I don't like this you know, music or I don't like the way that they do this or this. And that Those things are valid opinions. They're differences. We set those aside for the sake of the gospel and we unify ourselves, one Lord, one baptism, one body, one church, all centered on, on the gospel. So here's, here's how I'll um, wrap it up today. If you, this is hard, if you are someone today that struggles with your gender, struggles with your gender identity, feels like there is something wrong with you or something that should be different about you than the way that you were made, I want to encourage you as Paul would encourage you to own the gender that, that God has given you. And I know it's a struggle. I know it's hard. I know that there's some things that are really complicated and complex about it, and Paul would encourage you own it and embrace the way that God has made you because it's when you live that out that you will flourish in, in, in life. That's where true freedom and true liberation are found. Not when you go off on your own tangent and whenever you dig into what God has for you and, and live that out. And then I would say, I think the application, another application that Paul would make to us today is that for those of you who are married, husbands and wives, that your lifestyle should be honoring to your spouse. And here the kind of issue is head coverings for them. For, I don't know what it is for you perhaps, but Paul's heart for your relationship, for your marriage relationship, is that you should see your, your, your goal is honoring your spouse. That you don't do things to dishonor them. You don't do things to, to disrespect or to avoid or to ignore or to, to put them down. No, you, you honor them. You see them as, as wanting to respect and give them value and, and honor them in the way that God has, has made them and what they, they bring to uh, the, rela the relationship. And then I want to say that, that the church, we've, we've got to do a better job. We just have to do a better job when it comes to gender, when it comes to acceptance, when it comes to people in our culture. We have to be like Jesus and love them regardless of who they are. And, and, and live like Jesus and, and love people regardless of what it is, regardless of, who they, regardless of how it is that they walk through these doors. We love them regardless of, of who they are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today and the way that it instructs us and encourages us, challenges us, inspires us. I pray that you would help each of us to be able to set aside our bias, set aside our, our, our baggage when it comes to the text, God, and to be able to own it and hopefully see it and accept it for, for what it is, God. And I pray that you would allow us to be a church that hopefully lives this out and operates this way, that we're a church that is beautiful the way that you would want us to be. So God, I ask for this grace in Christ's name. Amen.